is that we've been very fortunate that Vital has um, supported us through a Vital grant. Thank you, Carol Weiss. Um, for, it's been a pleasure to have. We've had a wonderful series thus far. We're also looking forward to three terrific sessions in the spring. So keep uh, keep your eye out in the um, in your mailboxes for what will we what will we bring in for you then. Today we are very very pleased to have our own Paul Danov speaking to us on the topic of the Israelite and Hellenistic backgrounds of the Gospels. Um, I can give you a few facts about his background, some of which you may already know. He's an associate professor of theology and religious studies here at Villanova. He received his PhD from the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley, and his areas of specialty are New Testament, narrative, rhetorical, and linguistic studies. Um, he is publishing a brand new book is, is coming out in what's our date 2000 London um, this it's not out yet right it's April, April. there we go April 2009 um, a grammatical and exegetical study of New Testament verbs of transference a case frame guide to interpretation and translation so very exciting news congratulations on that uh, follows up his previous book the rhetoric of the characterization of God Jesus and Jesus's disciples in the Gospel of Mark um, but I also wanted to say just a few words about uh, Paul as a speaker, and I've, I've had the privilege now to see him several times in lecture formats, both with faculty but also with students. And about eight years ago, I mentioned this in the email I sent, he did a bang-up workshop for us here, what we used to be Court Humanities, and people still are talking, people who were there at the time still talk about it as just being a real touchstone of thinking about the New Testament. And most recently, I just had the lovely experience of him speaking to my students and uh, other students in the love and friendship learning community, and speaking to us about the you know love in the Gospel of John. And he opened up the last passage, the very wonderful passage about feed my sheep, feed my sheep, in a way that just uh, this was astonishing to me and made me realize I have to learn Greek. We need to speak Greek. <laughs> so, I, so without further ado, we're just so pleased to have you back again. So, well, thank I'll you. hand it right over. Thank you. Well, after that, after that intro, I, I'm uh, dreading what's about to happen. No, uh, <laughs> this is a very difficult topic to speak about. Um, and before we get started, I would just like to ask a few of you one question, and one two-part question. Uh, which book of the Bible do you cover in your class, and how many days do you spend on that topic? Uh, could I just have some volunteers? Of uh, the New Testament? Uh, well, whichever. Uh, I, I think yeah. that you can choose either Testament. It really doesn't matter. I'm just curious about how much time you spend on particular books. Well, I'll answer. I, I, I do Genesis, Exodus, and Matthew, and at least four weeks on Genesis, Exodus, and about two weeks on Matthew. Whoa, well, that's, that's very nice. That's very nice. Then what I say may or may not be applicable. Uh, anybody else? No, yes. I do. Uh, I've, I've switched it up. I've either done John or Matthew, and then from the New Testament, and then I've done James. So Matthew and James go well together about. Three weeks. Three weeks. Excellent. Excellent. I actually am asking because I do not know, and the answers to your questions will decide which way we go through these handouts. So I, I just needed a little bit of information. When, when I teach uh, my introdu introduction to the New Testament course, I, um, I usually spend about six, well, that includes within it oh, about one and a half days of how 
Greek literature was written and interpreted. So um, in order for me to start my course, I've already used up two weeks of class. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was curious about how much time you actually had to, to give to particular uh, texts because the historical background, the cultural background is enormously complex. And um, I think the problem that we're going to face as long as we have, we have to attend to the Israelite and Hellenistic background of the texts is the fact that this background is complex and very interwoven between the Hellenistic and Israelite concepts and themes. And I would like to just start with one quick example. Um, any of you who do the Synoptic Gospels in particular are going to know that we can't get very far in our discussion of the text without talking about the Son of Man. Uh, because this title comes up so many times in reference to Jesus. And the problems that we're going to face in dealing with the background of the use of this is that it has multiple backgrounds. Uh, if we stick with the official scriptural background, then Son of Man is either going to refer to a human being or to a representative of the people of God. So we already have this Israelite background to this title. However, a lot happened between the writing of those scriptures and the time of the New Testament. And what's happened in Israelite religion is that by the first century, it's as variegated as Christianity is today. And each of the subdivisions are dealing with traditional concepts like the Son of Man in very different ways. So we have uh, people in northern Palestine apparently had been influenced by Hellenism and Son of Man has become a concept that deals not so much with a human being or the representative of God's chosen people, but some, in some sense the form of a human being or the uh, perfect paradigm of humanness that is manifest partially in each of us. But at the same time, that's just one of the types of Israelite religion that is operative in northern Palestine at the time. And each of our New Testament authors in particular are dealing with different branches of Judaism or proto-Judaism -Judaism in, in their formulation of concepts. Then they're adopting these concepts and these concepts are percolating through theological reflection for 30, 40, 50 years before the writers come along and use it so it barely resembles what it started out as. And then the authors each have a program of developing a specific unique way of looking at the Son of Man for themselves. So there's technically nothing I can tell you about the Son of Man that you can use automatically in any one of your classes. <laughs> You see the problem? Anything that I would give you is going to be reinterpreted, reformulated, mixed with new ideas, and developed before it actually hits the page. And so whatever I tell you about Mark won't work in Matthew. Anything I tell you about Matthew won't work in Luke. And the, the problem I see is that there's going to be enormous complexity in trying to feed or present to your students a certain set of concepts that would be applicable to all of you here. And I don't know how to do that, to be honest. I'd be happy to answer questions about any particular book, but that would not serve the interests of anybody else. 
So what I would like to do as an avenue of access into the historical and cultural background, as it is going to be useful to you in your courses, and it doesn't matter which testament you're using or which writing in which text uh, testament you're using, what I thought I would do is, is play from my strength, which is narrative rhetorical analysis, and perhaps walk you through strategies for identifying within whichever book you're using, or books that you're using, how to identify particular themes that you would want to go into in more depth with your students, because they are being used in your texts in a way that, that requires further understanding to interpret the larger context. Does that make sense? Okay. And so I have two ways of doing that here, uh, with the handouts, and I would, I, I would like to just introduce this here, and during the discussion which follows, you are, you are welcome to ask me whatever you want about whatever you want. And I am happy to answer whatever I have and to say, one does not give what one does not have. That <coughs> becomes operative. OK. Um, the first thing I want to point out is when you deal with your biblical books in class, at least you as the teachers probably will need to have access to a good commentary or two about that biblical book. I'm not talking about a general introduction to the New Testament or the Old Testament. You're going to have to get very specific very quickly. Uh, our library has a series of good commentaries. Uh, in general, the Anchor Bible commentary is good. The Sacrapagina commentary is good. I would recommend that you read through those and a third recommendation I would make before we leave this topic is I really value the New Jerome Biblical Commentary, which we have a couple of copies of in our library. These are written by people from a more traditional mindset than I teach my own courses, which is why I have my students read them, so they do all the heavy lifting. But they are very concerned with historical and, to some extent, cultural background of each individual text. Also, I think that you are using the Catholic Study Bible in most cases, yes. And uh, those introductory articles are basically the boiled down to a few pages uh, version of what's in the New Jerome Biblical Commentary. So they do give you, they do highlight particular things that you may find important. The footnotes are also helpful. And I always tell my students that reading the text without the footnotes means that you haven't done your assignment. Um, so I, I would just like to preface with that. Uh, to give you an indication of how very differently the gospel authors, and that's where I will focus because that's where I do focus, how differently the, the gospel authors deal with a particular event in the life of Jesus, which was basically part of common knowledge among early Christians, I have this particular handout here, which is the baptismal story. It looks like that. And I have used this handout before, but I'm going to use it in a different way today. And I cannot read this, so I'm going to need volunteers to go through. But what I would like you to do is just look, to begin with, look at these different versions of what appears to be the same event that they are referring to. And remember also when you read especially New Testament books, 
that they are all written in Greek, which means that they are already highly influenced by Hellenistic form and style. And in the Hellenistic world, history and historiography technically belong to which discipline? <coughs> they belong to the discipline of rhetoric. And the purpose of telling history or retelling history is to draw the moral and ethical and civil or political or whatever implications of historical events for the community. So it's already a rhetorical project before it gets started. And this rhetorical project is your commentaries on what the theologies of the writers are and that will give you an indication but the real way to figure it out is to read the text. And when you're reading the text, also to know how to find out where the author is actually emphasizing something, because those will be the more prominent <coughs> areas of his project, his, his or her theological project. So just looking at this story of, of the baptismal event of Jesus, what are the obvious things that, that you notice right away? And I put Mark on the far left, I think. I can't see that, but I think I put Mark on the far left because we're assuming that that's the oldest written version of it that we have and that Matthew and Luke, if you follow that theory, have used that as a source in their writing. I think the first thing that you can notice is that everybody felt very free to use the source material as they saw fit. Also length. I'm sorry? Length. Length, yes, well, uh, you know, Matthew could afford a longer scroll, so <laughs> uh, there's, there's no doubt there. Okay. Um, you've, underlined, you... you've underlined it already, or drawn it out a little bit, but the difference is in, in to whom the voice is speaking, or rather how the voice phrases the, the statement, this is my beloved, you are my beloved, so on and so forth. That's, or a, no that's voice. a big difference. Or no voice. Yeah. Or, right. right. And, and notice that we're dealing with an event here, the same event everybody knew about. Uh, it's, it's very similar, in a sense, to the way that the Greek playwrights dealt with the myths. You know, everybody knew the story, but my goodness, you read two of the plays about the same characters. And it, it's amazing. Each are bringing out particular points. And if you wouldn't mind just uh, reading across the bottom, this idea that the baptism in Mark is, has a built-in theological problem, which is that it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is kind of embarrassing to anybody who thought it through. Uh, I actually think Mark did think it through, and this works beautifully in Mark. but. The Jesus of Matthew and Luke, at least, uh, uh, would never require, well, certainly would not require forgiveness of sins, but wouldn't even require repentance. There would never was that change of mindset. That How they dealt with this problem. Ma Ma Mark doesn't have a pro problem. What does Matthew do? Matthew develops this entire conversation about how uh, it's okay to do it, even though there's a theological problem, because God said so. Luke solves the problem by putting John in jail before Jesus even gets baptized. I mean, thereby making me wonder why we call him John the Baptist at all, because, I mean, from a Christian's perspective, the only significant baptism was that of Jesus. And John just gets rid of baptism completely. It just doesn't happen. And each of these are because of cultural, historical considerations. 
from Mark's perspective what is going on. Jesus is truly the Son of God, but Jesus is adapting as he goes through this gospel. He's learning, he's reacting, he's not just acting. There's very little reactive Jesus in that sense in the other gospels. When we get to Matthew, he's coming from a very decidedly Jewish Christian perspective where traditional legal forms and vocabulary have great significance. So we have to deal with that because he is writing to what is at least historically a predominantly Jewish Christian community. Now there's enough Greeks in there now, but the old guard is still there. This is the way they think. They think according to scribal or Pharisaic Judaism. And so we have to get our terms correct. We have to explain things. We have to develop things logically in a particular way. This is Pharisaic Judaism, which is not just purely Israelite background, but is a product of the interaction between Israelite religion and Hellenistic culture, right? So we have to know a little bit about Pharisaism in order to understand what Matthew is doing here. We have to understand a little bit about popular, at this point I think I can begin to start using the word Jewish piety, or at least Israelite piety. We have to understand these things in order to understand why the story appears like this. When we get to Luke, we have a completely different set of presuppositions. Here is probably a Gentile Christian writing for an overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, Gentile Christian audience. And yet, we have somebody who's a great student of the scriptures. But it's an appropriation of the scriptures by an outsider, a non-Israelite devotee, Luke. We have somebody who's very concerned with with Hellenistic norms of writing and interpretation. And we also have somebody who is concerned explicitly in the introduction with what constitutes accuracy in historical narration understood as a project of rhetoric. Okay? So what we have here is, is a practicing a Gentile Christian theologian fitting things neatly into a new conceptualization of who Jesus is. And that will begin to explain his changes in the text. Okay. And then what we get to, when we get to John, oh my gosh, what do we have when we get to John? You know, it's a, I always tell my students, buckle up, we're getting to John today, you know. I tell them to bring their airbags with them if they can do that. What do we have here? We have here an, 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 a, uh, a Jewish Christianity that's steeped in more of a fringe group of Israelite religion that is highly suspect of temple worship, priesthood, is very similar to some of these communities whose documents we've recently unearthed. And I can say recently because I'm in a business where 100 years is nothing, right? Um, we're dealing here with, with a highly speculative, theologized understanding of everything. We're, we're dealing with a, a community, if I say Messiah in Matthew, it's going to mean a little bit different than Mark and Luke. And when we get to John, who knows what it means. Um, and what we have here is a project that is unique in the New Testament of casting everything in as thoroughgoing a Christocentric manner as is conceivable to me. 
where everything is relativized in, in relation to the person of Jesus. And so everything can be appropriated in any way that elucidates even the tiniest fact about what we believe about the person of Jesus. At this point, I begin to wonder how valuable any extensive study of backgrounds is going to be beyond a certain familiarity with the overall project, uh, overall background. The, the Joannine project is ruling every ounce of this narrative. And in this narrative, it does not behoove the, the community to admit that Jesus was even baptized by John, so it is gone. So you can see how the, the, the background of the community, but even more the way that background has been interpreted in the theological reflection of communities is paramount. Any questions or comments? I, I, we're going to have lots of time to talk at the end, but I hate this listening to myself talk. <laughs> could, I, could I ask about uh, your comment about Matthew and, and Pharisaism? You commented that Pharisaism is a, a product of interaction of, of Judaism and, and Hellenism. Well, it was, a, it was a negative reaction. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees seem to have grown up in, in somewhat of a, a reaction to encroaching Hellenism, but in the process, they absorbed all sorts of ideas, as is usually the way. Like, like what? Well, the, the, the new, I mean, there's, there's for, for one example, there is, there is some kind of a mention of the possibility of a resurrection in the background in, in, in Ezekiel, I believe it is. That's not my testament, but I go there once in a while. Um, and there are other discussions of uh, more than an existence in, in Sha'ol, but of, of, of a resurrection of the just. Mm -hmm. We get it in the later books of the Maccabees, but we also get it in intertestamental literature. And yet by the time we get to Pharisaism, this concept has a lot of what appears to be overlays from a general Greek culture, this idea that there's a part of us that lives forever. There's, there's no uh, reincarnation or anything, but there's, there's a distinction between what happens to good people and what happens to bad people, built into their apparent understanding. Because, I mean, we don't have a lot of direct evidence about what they understood, but in Acts, Luke can have Paul call on the Pharisees to support him in the resurrection of the dead. So, so there seems to be some kind of theologizing going on, which goes well beyond Israelite religion, at, at least as it appears in, in the canon of the scriptures. So there's some kind of a development going on there, and it's, it's in the air that life goes on after death, and, and we have a novel, a very novel uh, Israelite spin on it, namely that the good are raised, the just are raised. I mean, in the Greek system, well, everybody goes on living, but some people have to go through more miserable lives. I'm going through Plato right now in one of my classes. You know, We have to go through better or worse lives, and some of us actually get to the Elysian fields or whatever, but, but it's, it's not as clear-cut as there either is or is not, this idea that there is a resurrection for the just, and the rest of us, I guess, are recyclable material. Uh, you know, but, but that's, that, I don't think that that could come up outside of uh, interaction with Hellenism. Yes? Um, 
there's an there's an emphasis on justice also within Hellenism, um, but uh, one thing that jumps out at me in comparing these different columns um, is is the emphasis on justice in Matthew, and I can see how that could go with the uh, uh, with the uh, greater emphasis on the Jewish community. Um, would you say that uh, that because of the emphasis you're describing in, in Matthew and in, in, in the source and the audience, there's a greater emphasis on justice in that work? Uh, there would be because it's a greater emphasis on law and justice is defined in terms of adherence or violation of law, which is very different if you listen to Luke's sermon on the uh, plane. You know, but, but at the same time, it's not merely a reproduction of the understanding of justice and law in the books of the scriptures. There is some, there is, there's a widening of it, there's an adaptation of it. It does become more an issue. I mean, it's still primarily Israelite, but there, there are Hellenistic influences even there because it, it becomes not merely a matter of conforming oneself to the law, but of, in Pharisaism, of projecting the law into new realms of life and making God's law pertinent there also. So uh, Matthew will be concerned with the way community members interact with each other. The law would be concerned to make sure that they don't injure each other more than how they get along. So you see that nothing, nothing is, you can't put your finger on anything and say that's it. Everything is influence to a greater or a lesser degree. Of course, when you get over to Luke, justice is back there. Because all of it is now in interpersonal, it's in polis terms of how we get along inside the Christian polis instead of uh, how do we settle disputes according to Mosaic law. See? So it's, it's, everything's on a shifting scale. And each of the authors will start at a particular point, but the whole reason to write is to get to a different point. So even from the beginning to the end, things are going to be modified. Well, that's helpful. Thank you. OK. Anything else? If you're going to talk about this later, then <coughs> defer. But the idea, insofar as the, how the prophetic tradition juxtaposes itself against, against Hellenism as well, I don't know if you're going to hit on that. And so how do you describe Jesus, not in, within a, a, lust, a, a justice or law, type paradigm, but how that fits in with the prophetic tradition as well, and its concern about justice and law, and especially Hellenism, that's what I'm, it's kind of a curious. Well, it, it's interesting that the biggest development of the prophetic strand of Israelite religion among the Gospels, the most systematic ex expansion of it, to my mind, is in Luke, which is the most Gentile right. focused of the entire for Gospels. So Luke has, has an enormous amount of development of this concept inside, and yet he's going back to authentic roots in, in Israelite religion. He's going back to the prophetic books. He's actually interpreting them in many cases more closely to what's going on in, in the synagogues than Matthew is doing. And yet he's probably still going to a synagogue, you know? I mean, it's right. that kind of thing. So it's, it's again, I, I, I keep saying it, and I'll probably keep saying it. It's, it's very complex. Mm -hmm. And 
whatever we decide for Luke, we cannot pick up and throw into Matthew or to John. That's, that's the complexity and difficulty or the richness, as I like to tell my students as they groan. <coughs> We're going to yet again find out what prophets are in this gospel. But, but the, it's interesting the way that a prophecy influences in many ways it's, it's one of the most important influences that come from Israelite religion. The whole prophetic tradition, the critique of the rich, the powerful, the critique of the temple, the cults, the, the critique of elites, all of that, it's everywhere, but I can't put my finger on any particular part and say this is going to show up everywhere. So there, is that too vague for your prophecy? Um, yeah. Yeah. Make me more specific. I'm trying to address a general audience right now. You can you can ask me to be more specific. Um, well, yeah. I guess what I'm wondering about because this because the whole the, the talk is this idea of seeing the Gospels in a Hellenistic tradition. And and yes, I think you know from Mark and what he sees, how he defines what a prophet is and where Jesus stands in the prophetic tradition, is he a is the difference between being prophetic and being a prophet. Yes. And so so how these as standing in that tradition, Jesus is a prophet like Elijah. Jesus is a prophet like Elisha, except but more. You know, it's always but more. It's always but more, always but, but it's more. also this. This is our understanding of Jesus. And then even as we say he's in the line of the prophets like Elijah, we redefine what Elijah was back then. To a certain extent, yes. You're selective at least. Yes, we're very selective yeah. and we fool with translations and we, <laughs> we highlight things that even people who know Elijah really well would go, oh, yeah, I guess he did that. You know, but, but the thing is, the point is, is that you have to remember that even though John is, has the most glorious Christocentric project, the whole New Testament is Christocentric. And so what we remember is always filtered through our experience of who Jesus is for us. And so when we read the scriptures or when we read about the prophets or when we see what the prophets did, it's not that they did this, therefore Jesus is going to do this. It's that Jesus did this, and oh look, they did something like it, and they obviously had the same intent that Jesus did. Right. We'll read it back. Sure. So absolutely. So what you have, I think, what you have to do to understand prof, the prophetic element of any of the New Testament texts is to start working on a comprehensive theology of that text and then project back the function of prophecy, prophetic role within it. Is this a purely then Judaic phenomenon? Is this something that only Jews were concerned about? No. But, and that, that, this that is, this is how society out. survived. This is generation to generation. You keep going back. Now, it, it's, it's firmly ingrained in Israelite religion. I mean, yeah. we have a king. We have these great, and I never get it right, Deuteronomistic books. And then we don't have a king. We have a priestly class ruling. And, oh, no, we've got two books of Chronicles now telling the same story from, you know, <laughs> Mars or something. It's a completely different perspective. And we keep telling the same stories over and over from our perspective. But this is going on in Greece. It, I, like I said with the playwrights, they're taking, the, they're taking the, the myths and they're retelling them from a particular perspective. And then Plato comes along and gives us another. And, and we're reinterpreting these every generation in light of our experience and our needs. So there's, there's continuity and there's, there's a thread there, but it's not identity, which we know. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's easy. 
But what happens in, in the Christian movement is we've got so many different uh, strands of, of Israelite religion interacting right at our formative stages. And of course, that's exactly when new religious movements are going to form because everything's up for grabs and everything's being reinterpreted. And people are, are drawing on these sources in ways that we can't document or even puzzle out. And as I said, even the most anti-Hellenistic movements within what's going to be Judaism end up being thoroughly influenced by Hellenism. And all of this goes through a period of percolation before they even start writing. Right. <clears throat> so it's, 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 it's like trying to s separate salt and pepper, you know? It's, right. it's, it's a very difficult thing. That doesn't mean that the historical project is not significant. What I'm going to say is that it is significant, but you can't do it all in three weeks, six weeks, two weeks, whatever. Right. What you're going to have to do is, from my perspective, and I don't want to tell you how to run your business, but I'd certainly pick a few things that we know are central to this author and hit those uh, as well and as broad spectrum and as hard as we can so that something of the original text can come out. The way I do this is that I always use a narrative approach because our culture is so different, our language is different, everything is different, but we still interpret stories in a remarkably coherent way over time. And that's because no matter what the story is, we're going to put our apparatus on it and make something meaningful come out of it. And that's the hook I use to get students into it. Right. I hook the students into it with a narrative approach, and then I introduce these other methods and say, now let's see what's important here. And then we can go back and talk about the history, culture behind that. Yes? Yeah, just a quick question. It seems to me that in the limited time that we often have in these kind of classes, the, especially with Matthew, it's also true with, with, with John, that the competition between Jesus or his followers and the Pharisees and the law, it's not easy to unpack, but it's relatively straightforward. But something that comes up that is not so easily, it's very thematic, but it's not so easily tackled, and I'd love to hear what you would say about it, would be temple and sacrifice. Temple and sacrifice. Well, whenever there's a prophetic something going on, it's not very good news for temple and sacrifice. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing I would say. Um, there's a critique going on there, but it's, it's not... Remember, remember how Mark has, has the uh, scribe say, you know, if you do the love of God, the love of God and the love of neighbor is more important than all of the sacrifices and offerings. I, I can't hear a Sadducee saying that myself. Um, but I can hear, that's, I think that that's a, a bedrock of fact. Everything isn't centered on the cult anymore because the cult is so discredited in the first century. Um, some people are navigating around the cult and finding alternative means of expressing their religiosity in prophetic movements. Some are doing it in mystical movements, where we have a word theology going on and things like this. The relationship to the cult in every New Testament book, including Hebrews, is one of skepticism and one of um, that whatever happened in Jesus' 
surpassed what could, whatever could happen in the cult. The cult, because the, the salvation brought in Jesus is more profound than that, than could be brought through cultic observance. So how do we deal with that? Well, look at your students. I mean, how ingrained are they into the cult of their religion? We're in a time that is remarkably parallel in many, many ways to what's going on in Palestine in the first century. Anything that's significant. There are multiple new arising arenas of significance. And in the Christian movement, all of these new areas of significance or developing areas of significance are linked into Jesus himself. So he becomes the prophet for Christians. He becomes uh, the messianic figure, the Messiah for Christians. He becomes the lawgiver for Christians. And, and when we get into John's gospel, he becomes the basis of a new, I don't even want to use the word cult, but I'll put it in quotation marks, a new cult. Uh, so it's, yeah, go ahead. Well, just to follow up, I mean, the tension that, that I often run into is with this notion, on the one hand, the critique is there of the cult, of, this, of the system, of the temple, but nevertheless, they, while they're simultaneously critiquing it, it's also reappropriating it in terms of lamb, blood, death, sure. this, this kind of right. stuff. Right. Like I said, everything is being associated, if you want to be fair, the incarnation in John, the life in the synoptics, the death and in, in Pauline literature. It's all significant for us. It's all being appropriated. Traditional forms are being used. But notice how I don't think that if we were still confined to merely or exclusively, not merely, but exclusively Israelite religion, you could ever come up with Hebrews. That would be inconceivable. Absolutely inconceivable. Now, I'm not saying that that's standard in early Christianity. That's just another one of those communities producing a work. But, but the thing is, is that there are quantum leaps happening between the tradition and Christian reflection as apparent in the New Testament. And if you want to get really specific, I'm trying, like I said, I'm trying to balance this so it's addressing everybody's needs a little, but I'm probably not addressing your needs. Is, so you get to ask me a really pointed question. How's that? <laughs> if you want. Well, I mean, that, that, that kind of did it. I mean, my, Okay, okay, good, good. But, the, but you know, like I said, the, the, to read this with freshmen or, you know, 18, 19 year olds who most of them have a reasonable amount of exposure, at least on the broad sweep of what, you know, the, the Christian message, you know, they, they can tell you the, the generalities. Uh, they, they read this and, you know, the, the law, in Matthew, for example, Jesus' interaction with the law, his interaction with the Pharisees, it's mildly disturbing, but, you know, they can appropriate it. You know, we can walk through it, we can see about, you know, comparisons. When, when say, you get to the end of Matthew, uh, more apocalyptic sections, and, and judgment is clear, sheep and goats, I mean, you were already mentioning it. And then you, you come, whether it's Matthew or John, well, and John, from the very beginning, this, this, you know, the, the blood and, and the land that takes away the sin of the world and the death and, and the link back to uh, 
the Jewish tradition that they're simultaneously critiquing? I mean, it's a question of, of how much do you hold on to and how much do you do? Well, I mean, it's, it, there are certain commonalities that go across a lot of books. For example, the blood at the end of Matthew. This, the, the blood of Jesus is the blood of the covenant that's for the remission of sins. So the idea of a sacrifice, or uh, I don't like the word sacrifice because it's not used in these, but the idea that blood is instrumental in the remission of sins or the removal of sins or the forgiveness of sins. That's a, that's a topic that really does pass. It's, it's further interpreted, but it does pass pretty much in state into the New Testament. Therefore, when you get to the end of Matthew and, and the blood of Jesus is on their head, this is the best news in the world because it means forgiveness is possible. And then you've got on the other side, in, uh, I love literary structures, on the other side of the canon, you've got uh, the, 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 the elders who have been washed white in the blood of the lamb. You know, this is, this is, uh, the blood is associated with forgiveness, but is it associated with animal sacrifice? That actually is played down because we don't have animal sacrifice in Christianity, but we do have the salvific function of blood within the cult. But you don't even have, at this time, you don't even have blood sacrifice in Judaism. Well, I mean, you can talk about, you can, you, can, you can reminisce, you can make history into anything you want because you don't have to deal with the present. You, don't, you can talk about the priest, you can talk about sacrifice, you can redefine it because you don't have to deal with the fact that you don't even, you don't have to worry about practicing it. Right. There's no temple. Although, although it's very fresh in the memory of people like Mark and, and Matthew. Granted. But and there still is blood cult in Palestine. It's just not happening in Jerusalem. But, but the thing is, you're right. This is, this is part of that old system that even the Jews are not using anymore. And it's even being reinterpreted right. in rabbinic Judaism already, and it's sort of like the temple ashes aren't even cool yet, and they're already reinterpreting. But the thing is, is that some things do get brought in, like the remission of sins. Sacrifice starts falling apart in the New Testament because there's no way of, in of integrating... The, well, they didn't use the concept of a cultic sacrifice, except in a certain sense clearly in Hebrews, but there's just, they're taking what they find useful, but it's only useful because they have this experience and understanding of Jesus and these traditional motifs give them an avenue of explaining that. They said, okay. And um, anything else before we move on? Another notch. Yes. Just as a point of information, when you when you say that um, they're influenced by the Greek rhetorical tradition, do we have any knowledge of what books they were reading, what authors they would have? I I would imagine, I'm going to say no. I would imagine that um, in in New Testament circles there's a lot of debate, but the one thing we do know is that there was a tradition of education into reading and writing Greek, and these would be in the um, manuals for the gymnasmata. Uh, um, they would have traced their, well, it would be multiple sources they could have used. But basically, this was a common knowledge kind of um, bare minimum. Get them out of, you know, get them 
to the point where they can pass their GED and move on. And I don't know if there's a whole lot of extra <coughs> educational background, except for somebody like Luke or Paul. I don't think that there would be an enormous amount of educational, uh, official educational background beyond that. Uh, which is funny because Paul goes crazy with his rhetorical forms that don't always work, and Luke is much more Israelite or Hebraic in his presentation, although he's very clear and logical, which is very much a, a Greek introduction. He's sensitive enough to reproduce the forms of the past, at least on the surface. When you dig down far enough, he's Greek. <laughs> but on the surface, he could, uh, 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 a Jewish Christian could pick that up and feel comfortable with the manner of argumentation. So I don't think that, I don't think we can certainly push it back to anybody's rhetoric by any stretch of the imagination. But it would be sort of what's filtered out over the last 400 years into the domain of common education. Professor Dunnell? Yes. Um, a quick question following up about your discussion about the temple and its symbolism of sacrifice in the Christian context. This may be beyond um, the scope of this talk, but my students just finished reading chapters in Robert Wilkins' book, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. And in the chapter on Justinian um, and his uh, plans to rebuild the temple uh, as a way of thwarting the Christian movement, um, Wilkin seems to say that this that the Christians really took this as a threat um, to their project. And I, I was wondering if you could just comment on that. Well, I mean, there's many ways in which it could be a threat. It could be a theological threat. I, I would imagine that the biggest threat would be a political threat. Because, um, because who was going to control that temple? It wasn't going to be the Zadokite priest or the Aaronite priest. It was going to be just, just uh, Justinian, sorry. And it, it was going to fall under the emperor. And this would have enormous sway in communities that had traditional Jewish roots. I don't think it would matter a whit to a Lucan community, but it would matter to those many uh, uh, Jewish Christians communi communities. And you have to remember the situation of Christianity all the way until the middle of the first century. After the fall of Palestine to the Romans and the scattering of the mother church in Jerusalem and all of those nice Palestinian Christian communities into the rest of the empire, what you were dealing with were communities that were predominantly, predominantly Gentile welcoming in these people who either knew or their parents knew Jesus directly. These would be people of great suasive potential. And so in many of these communities, you could imagine that there would be something of a Jewish-Christian core around which Gentile Christian communities were being formed, or people who occupied special positions of moral suasiveness uh, or preaching suasiveness. And so these predominantly Gentile Christian communities <coughs> would have the potential to sway the whole community, because these, these people would have the precedence of experience on their side. They came from there. They, they knew him. Their parents knew them. Their grandparents knew them, uh, knew, knew Jesus. So I think that, the, that I'm probably much too cynical, but I would say that the polit politics would be way more important than theology in that regard. 
because none of the church fathers are taking this as a theological challenge that, that people are in fact worried about who's got the power and yes you can be cynical even as a New Testament scholar as long as it functions methodic, uh, in a methodological way to, to help us okay um, if I could quickly I just want to point out these other handouts how are ways that you can find what's important so that you know which cultural and historical themes that really require more attention than others you don't have time to do the whole thing I don't have time to do the whole thing in a, in a course that I spend on one book. So you don't have the time. I'm just going to make that statement for you. There are a number of ways you can do it. One of them is through the structures of the works. And this is something that is very much, um, it's present in the Hebrew Bible. It's present in its Greek translation. But it is always there. It's not just hit or miss when it comes to uh, the, the Hellenistic writings. So since the New Testament is written in Greek, you can always assume that there's a structure there waiting to tell you what the author finds to be the most important thematic element. And the most important thematic element always comes at the center of these structures. And so you, if you want to go through, uh, I, I have a, a paper I'm presenting in two weeks in Boston, and what I do is I just go through the introduction to, to Mark, the first 15 verses, and verses 9 through 14 form this beautiful seven-place structure, and right in the middle of it is, you are my beloved son. So that settles. Everything else is okay now. We can, we can do whatever we want with the Holy Spirit. We can get tested by Satan. We know, what, we know where... We, we are not willing to negotiate, and that is that this sonship of Jesus is set by God, and you don't have a lot of options when God says something. So, um, you know, what are we going to look at as the most significant elements of uh, the text? How are we going to take uh, a, a basically an indefinitely long course on a particular biblical book and turn it into something manageable? Well, the thing to do is to find perhaps the five or six most important themes that are going on there, examine them, and then read the whole just in terms of those five or six themes. One way you can do it is through structures like this. These structures, and I point out uh, various, I think, somewhere, maybe. Oh, I point out, uh, like in this super-duper mark in structure, how you can find parallels that tell you that this structure, in fact, is one way of interpreting Mark's project, Mark's theological project in writing. You can also turn over that sheet, and we've got everybody who's read Mark knows that we've got these wonderful passion predictions, passion resurrection predictions, followed by something really stupid that the disciples do, followed by some really hard, unpleasant teachings <coughs> by Jesus. I find that if I point, if, if I get, well, I start pointing it out, but then students start pointing them out to me, which means that they're actually starting to enjoy my course, which is a phenomenon, I know. But <laughs> getting them to, to actually be able to find structures like this and say, look, this is being repeated, whatever's repeated is important, you start to get them to the position where they can, they'll start to ask better questions. They'll start to say, well, this came up three times in one verse. Therefore, this is what this story is about. Well, let's go to the center of the story and see what's going on. Oops, that's exactly what the story is about. 
you know, that helps them to get into it. And one thing that I would hope is that not just learning about a particular biblical book, because you can never get too deeply no matter how long you have with it. I don't get too deeply after a semester. But no matter how deeply or not you can get into it, you help them to find out how meaning was structured, I'm in which things are structured. Interestingly, as far as I can tell, and I'd have to rely on my uh, Hebrew Bible Old Testament colleagues who happen to be here, uh, that um, at least in some of the Psalms and in some of the latter chapters of Genesis, it looks like somebody has been editing with a careful eye to creating structures like this. Now, whether that goes any further, trust me, my Hebrew is very rusty and I'm not going back. So, you know, the, but, but the, the, these kinds of structures were there. They're also there in, uh, demonstratedly, demonstrably there in um, some of the earliest works written in Chinese and Sanskrit. So this might actually be something for our cognitive scientists to get working on. But uh, human beings do structure meaning albeit differently, but we ultimately, if we have enough time, we can communicate with each other. So there's something common going on there. And I'll leave that for the philosophers. So you see, I keep giving everybody else a job, and I just stick with the New Testament. But noticing these parallels, noticing what's, para, what's re repeated inside of these parallels, uh, it's not just that Jesus makes a passion resurrection prediction. That's fancy enough. But then the fact that the teachings, even though they use lots of different vocabulary, keep coming back to the same vocabulary over and over and over. This becomes important. This is the thread that holds the whole together. So if you can, if you can get your students to be able to do this, then you can come back and say, look, he's talking here about life. Life is something that comes up over and over, especially in the way section of Mark. Life, psuche in Greek. Well, now you've got a complete course. You could spend the rest of the course there. We're at the center of the gospel in the way section, and life keeps coming up. Psuche, and this isn't just biological life. That would be bios. It's not even necessarily, first off, the life that lasts forever, though that's related in these passages to psuche. Psuche is the fullness of human existence. And then when you do that, you go, oh my, well look, footnote to nefesh in Hebrew, but also a footnote to something that we could at least see in a basic way in Plato's writings of there's some kind of a life force that is supposed to be directed to good here. You could, you could mine both avenues for what you want. I happen to think that mining the Israelite side of the equation is more promising in this one example, but you can't lose by mining both sides, and you're going to need the other side when you come to other places where psuche is used in, in um, Mark. Or when you get to Luke, you're going to have to, uh, unfortunately, you're going to have to go to the other side of the equation and really mine the, the Hellenistic Greek background of psuche. Although the, the Hebraic concept is still there, but now the emphasis has changed. So, but at least you'll know what to cover if you've got limited time, and you might be able to pick out a few themes that will provide a key to unlock the whole to some extent, as opposed to just picking themes that might be interesting but don't cohere and provide an interpretive key for the whole.
So that's that's basically the reason I gave you. I, my students get these in every every book we do. Ad nauseam. Uh, that would be their expression, not mine. So uh, you know, uh, any questions about? And I'm I'm done with with a basic bare bones introduction. Anything else I'd be happy to talk about? Yeah. Tim, do you have a question? Yeah, I know, I just walked Oh, no. (laughs) Glad to have you here. Go ahead. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. Glad to know that really made an impact a couple minutes ago. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm curious about this, uh, the cognitive idea, you know, and I understand there's, I like the idea that, you know, we have to structure things in order to make them make sense to us. Not only, uh, not only, not only do we structure bricks to make a wall, but we also structure uh, a pollock in order to make art. You know, that there's a scat, there's a kind of structure even within things that might look chaotic at first. Right, right. And, I, and I think that, the, that trying to get in to that, uh, to the mindset of how that structure affects you as a reader, and there are some parts that, that like chiasm, I mean, uh, uh, you have a lot of chiastic yeah, I, I do that a lot because it's something students yeah. can see, and right, it's, con- right. it's as concrete as it gets in my it is, class. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, but what is what is the effect of? What, I'm curious with questions like, what's the what's the effect of chiasm? Uh, what's the emotional impact? How does how does prelude and postlude make that center, which is the meaning? How does that come across? Is that something that we're hardwired to agree with, or is that something that is? is this imposed structure that helps make sense of things but has no real emotional or cognitive impact. Well, what I would say is that we have to assume, for this to work, we have to assume that that the New Testament writings are rhetorically charged narratives. They weren't written to pass the time. Everybody's got an ax to grind. Everybody's trying Mm -hmm. to get me to come to a specific type, a set of realizations. And I guess if I belonged to the original community for which it was written and I knew everything the way that they knew it, it might have worked that way. But the, the other thing is that if we agree that, the, that these, everything is structured to convince me of something, then what we start off with and what we end with are the beginning and end of a process. And they, this, this is, the author always hopes that we're right on board when the last line comes and we go, yes, that's, that's brilliant, we, want, we hold that. What's happening in the middle is the nuts and bolts of how we get there. That's the machine that gets us there. We're constructing a machine that if you put in the data and you crank it the way I tell you to, you're going to come out with these conclusions. And that's the value of structures like these because they are really, in many ways they are intricately structured. If I need points A, B, C, and D to come to my conclusion, mm-hmm. then I'm going to lay out what I need and I'm going to prove it D, C, B, A and come to my conclusion. Right. I, I wonder if you could ever use these texts in a way that illustrates how different meaning is when you apply different structures to a text. Oh, if, yeah. If there, well, are ways of, if there are ways of reading Mark where you, where you read it l- linearly, Right, that's a word. And and what conclusions do you get when you read it as a, as a narrative or a plot, well, as opposed to yeah. Uh, oh, you could do the same thing with Matthew, and also but also read well, it from any a, any book or any anything. Books. But I wonder if you could do this in class where you you save or hold this structure back, which which is a very academic thing. Oh yeah. To 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 go through <clears> and, and really organize and and try to see how the text fits together and it. it it's not necessarily intuitive. It's a highly mechanical structure that you bring to 
what could be seen as a very fluid text. But I'm going to disagree with you. I think it is intuitive for this reason. I asked them to pull out the last term paper that they wrote in high school and tell me how their teacher said to set it up. You tell me what you're going to do. You lay out your arguments. You prove all of your propositions. You summarize what you just did. Yeah. That's a chiastic structure. Yeah, we're, we're part of this culture. We're Western. I, I always tell my students I am happy to be alive today because I'm actually witnessing the death of Western civilization in their, in their papers. But the thing is, that's a joke. It gets them to t pay attention to the fact they're still being taught this way. I tell them to pick out a, 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 anything they want from the New York Times in the first section and read through it and tell me that it's, prove to me that it's not structured this way. They can. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it might not be intuitive in the sense of ingrained. Well, no, it would be intuitive well, in the sense of saying, ingrained. Yeah. But it might not. I mean, I can't prove anything with cognitive science. What I can say is this is the Western way we do things. And what's good form in 100 CE happens to still be, at least in textbooks, good form in 2008 CE. So uh, we, we are part of this tradition. That's why I think a narrative approach is the hook to get students into it because right. they still know how to interpret stories. They're not, they don't study this in school, but every time, ever since they heard once upon a time, they've learned how to interpret stories right. in Western culture. Right. And that's the hook that gets them into it. And, and I would have to tell you that when I, when I teach a course, especially a course on one book, I give my students one pericope and they write four papers on it. <coughs> and the first one is, go pick out the important words, bring them to me, I'll give you the Greek form, you take it to a Greek concordance, you find everywhere it occurs. Tell me what these words mean in Mark or Luke or John. Then the next paper is, here's a chiastic structure. Tell me what's the most important part of it. Number three, find that chiastic structure someplace else and tell me what's the most important thing there and relate it here. And so I, I told, and I think I have this on record in my previous talk to this group under an earlier name, uh, at Core Humanities, was that I tell my students that you can study the New Testament like you study a, a medical book. It has all those transparencies. You can put the skeleton down and you can put the blood vessels on top of it and get one image. Yeah. Or you can keep that away and you can put the musculature on it and get another image. Or you can put the organs in and the musculature. You can approach it with as many different ways as you want and, and we, those ways are called methods in my class and in yours. You can approach it with any method you want and you will get different interpretations because method drives interpretation. And I tell them that the purpose of a, a good Bible class is not to exhaust them with chiastic structures or use one thing, but keep putting those images on top of each other until we get something that starts to actually look like a person. And that's a good interpretation. And we couldn't have it without all the pieces. So you can't come and say that simply reading um, Bultmann is going to solve our problems. No or the Anchor Bible Commentary, no. But what you do is, is that if you, if you study the words, you find out where the themes are, they're going to highlight words. Do word studies. Go back and do chiastic structure studies. Go back and do whatever you do. Do multiple things coming back at themes, and what you're going to find is the best interpretation is the one that relies on the most different approaches because it's going to be like turning those pages. You'll eventually get enough meat on this, right. these bones that it looks like a person. Right, right. And that's a, 
That's a good one. And the more meat you get on is a better one. There's no correct interpretation, but there are a lot of good ones and a lot of really bad ones. Paul, well, hearkening back to the fact that you've done this before, can I resurrect, pun intended, uh, uh, another avenue for interpretation that, that I remember you bringing up before? Sure. And, and how today you think it's as rhetorically charged as the historical, theological backgrounds out of which these communities arose. Um, if Luke is an urban-dwelling, sophisticated physician uh, speaking to those sorts of people, or if Mark is speaking to farmers or whatever, the, their their class and and uh, professional uh, statuses. How how much are are do we read into the fact of how they've been educated, who they think their audience is, and what their goal is in terms of talking to a specific kind of a of an audience? Well, the thing is, I think you can pretty easily reconstruct their audience, even in the 21st century. Mark's dealing with people who live in huts. Luke's dealing with people who live in villas, or at least seaside places that have tile roofs. We can pick that up. You know how to do all that stuff with your students. And yet, we can, we can hook our students in because, well, Luke is easy. I always tell them Luke's too easy. That's why I make the paper on Luke devastatingly difficult, because Luke's too easy. Luke's got the same problems we've got, because he's got the same community we've got without iPods. But you know, they had everything else. Okay. Uh, but, but the other thing is that we can hook our students in with everything we do. I, I, I had a class last semester, um, last, last, spring, uh, last fall, because I was on sabbatical last semester. had a class last fall, and the student, we were reading Mark, and then mid-semester break came up, and then they came back, and they had been on, a, on a, uh, one of the trips with the campus ministry to build houses with Habitat. And all of a sudden, Mark was a genius. <laughs> he knew how people who were struggling lived, you know? And it, it, it's almost unfair that we have to educate our students before they have a life to reflect on. But, you know, <laughs> um, find them where they live and reflect on that. Uh, we, were t we were talking about John this morning. And one of the kids said, oh, this is great. I, I heard lyrics like this. And I said, well, I couldn't be less interested, but good. <laughs> and please don't inflict your lyrics on me, but good, good. You know, let's run with that. What if it was Amy Grant, though? Oh, well, I, I, like I said, like I said, <laughs> I, have to, I have to be very non-denominational in, uh, in my instruction. We have a very mixed student body here. But, but the thing is that, um, although I have pulled out a few lyrics myself, and they don't even know who the artists are anymore. But, um, but the thing is, you can, you can certainly grab them where they are. The reason I say try the story approach is because they all know stories. That's one thing. It doesn't matter which economic group they're from, what their religious background is, even which country they came from. They all know how to interpret stories. And that's, stories work. Stories work. Uh, but, but stories will, but analyzing these things in a way that highlights what the themes are will really help you to find where to spend your precious time because you don't have a lot of it. And I guess this is my end of my structure here. I'm coming back to the very beginning. If you, and then we can have questions. But if you're going to teach biblical books, do a good job of reading up ahead of time from a commentary, something that gets very nitpicky and specific. Don't inflict that on your students, but inflict it on yourself. 
and begin to cultivate in your own mind through reflection and reading and reread these texts. There's nothing better than reading the text. After several readings of it, start to figure out how you put it together and test it. Go back and see if there are structures of repeated words. If there aren't, you might be overreading the text. If there are, run with it. And, if, and through that process of exploration and discovery, you find a way to make this text enfleshed for you and alive for you and real for you. The enthusiasm is going to rub off on your students because you'll know exactly how to guide them to the same conclusion. And in the meantime, they'll keep throwing you off the road and it'll be good de detours because they're going to keep coming up with stuff. I mean, I don't know how many Disney movies I've missed by this point in my age, <laughs> but my students will go, oh, this is just like, and I'll go. <laughs> what, they wanted, what they wanted to do too was to, to mix the text. That's to say, um, let's say if you're talking about a theological question. So we, we were talking today about Jesus' consciousness. So does he know that he's divine, so on and so forth. Students want to talk about that for the temptation, in particular in, in Matthew we're studying. Um, and they always want to make appeal to, to Luke. So of course he knows because he was talking in the temple with the scribes, so on and so forth. And, and I tell my students uh, that there is one unforgivable sin in my class, and that is to bring, bring up another text while we're talking about this one, unless it's licensed by being quoted in this text. Otherwise, you are not permitted to do it, and I hound them about it. Yeah. Because, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I was kidding with, we're in John right now, and it's, we're, this is our third gospel of the semester, and somebody said, oh, gosh. Uh, John's Jesus would have made Mark so much easier. I said, yeah, it certainly would have, but it's not Mark. Mark's Jesus is, what? You didn't do what I said? Or, I'm amazed. You really don't understand this? And, and Jesus, you know, I always tell him, when we get to John, you wear your seatbelts, but you bring your weights for Jesus. We've got to hold him down before he floats away. You know, it's a very different <laughs> Jesus. And, and I keep impressing this on them. And even the papers I do make them compare and contrast. Because we've got to keep the other Gospels out of there or we're never going to hear what this writer is saying. And the reason it's in the, uh, the canon of the Bible is because bishops or rabbis or somebody somewhere said, this is important to hear, this story, not some kind of mishmash story. So I would say that you, you have my permission as, as the senior most of all of two New Testament teachers at this university to, to enforce the unforgivable sin. You do not allow your students to go from one New Testament book to another. Which I do. I'm, I'm glad to have your sanction. Oh, um, yeah, like it matters. But yeah, yeah. There was a question back Oh, I can't see that far. Oh, Sorry. Um, yeah, um, I was just wondering, this is something that's kind of come up for me. I just finished teaching Luke and... Um, I was wondering if you could comment, we just had a conversation where we talked a little bit about the different uh, class audiences for Mark, Luke. I was wondering if there's a way you can map that onto the difference between oral culture and written culture, and whether uh, you see in Luke, for example, an attempt to um, uh, make Christianity more of a written tradition than an oral tradition, because obviously we're getting on in years. It can no longer just be an oral tradition, it has to be written. And so the textuality of Luke, I think, is about what written culture is about. Um, and this also yeah, gets, I, gets I, to I, things like, you know, is structure intuitive? Well, it's not so much if you're an oral culture, it is if you're a written culture. We are a written culture, that's why if you look at the term paper, the structures seem intuitive because we're very written. 
Well, yes, let me just say this. Yes, there's a, uh, there is a certain literary background to Luke, which is a written background. I'm not convinced that his community <coughs> had any larger percentage of readers in it than um, written and oral. We have to be very careful because Greek children were educated in school orally. They didn't have a stylus in their hand for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. And they had to recite the alphabet backwards and forwards and chiastically, so they had to go alpha, wow. omega, and they had, you know, they had to do, and it was, and they had to construct complete arguments and present them in class before they learned how to write it, hold a stylus. So. Even the written culture was orally based. Mm -hmm. Or the oral culture was structurally based. Well, the, the structures that we see here are oral structures. They're not, I mean, it's not a Pythagorean theorem that would have a different logical format. That's a written format in this sense. Whereas they're doing, they're mimicking what any good orator would do spontaneously in public. So I think that there is that there is a literariness, if that's even a word. I get, we get to make words, right? We're just faculty together. We can make up words. I think that there's a literariness to Luke that is obvious. And there's, there's a sophistication and an artificiality to his narrative beauty that can only come from some kind of an, uh, an educational background. However, at the same time, I'm going to say that uh, everything he does is based in the oral tradition. He just does it better than the rest of them. And he does it the way that good orators do it better than the average person. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what he's doing. He's just being a good rhetor in that regard. He's doing it fancier, and I am, I am convinced, and I tell my students, they never have to believe anything I say, it's about the New Testament, not me. But I would, I would say that these works were thoroughly composed and edited before the first letter of them hit a page. And in that regard, they were composed to be heard, not read. I would be very surprised if any of these books, except parts of John, were written before they were written. <laughs> yeah. Any any other questions? Tim doesn't even have a question. I oh, but I'm sorry. Yes. Um, I just find, uh, especially the, the multiple columns, uh, to, be, to be fascinating, really, just noticing the differences between these, these texts. And you can certainly um, see different literary, I mean, theological projects at work in each of those. That, yeah, and, and so uh, the question is about those different projects. Um, I mean, I, just a very naive, uh, and therefore my question um, about this would be, in noticing these differences from one project to the next, are we noticing differences, um, it, are, they, are, are they giving us different glimpses ultimately of God um, as he's revealing himself in these Gospels? Or are we really getting different glimpses of different human beings? And so we're understanding different people at different times. Um, oh, you're going to make me way. do something that my students hate. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the way, I have to answer it that way, because these are, the, these are the reflections of a community about God. So this is their experience of God, but it's also 
self, they're explaining themselves when they're explaining God. And the interesting thing is that the canon has these 27, New Testament canon has these 27 different approaches to who we are and who God is and who Jesus is. And by the way, I said 27. I include each of Paul's letters as a different approach. And the, the bishops and, and all those other fancy people voted on this because these are approved interpretations. Notice it doesn't say anywhere, this is it. These are all approved interpretations as opposed to the others which weren't voted in. So they're all different. Yeah, and what we've canonized is particular interpretations as being acceptable. But not, none of them are defining to the exclusion of the others. Because yeah. I found it very striking when you said that they, there are different uh, rhetorics, I guess you could say, uh, I'll invent a word too, um, different rhetorics that are guided by different theologies subsumed within a different rhetorical um, thrust. I, d I don't think so. I think that the forms <coughs> determine the nature of the truth that can be asserted, but that they are forms and that the truth is on the inside, too. So that's why I have to answer yes to that, because they create a world in which X is true, and we say that world, that world's interpretation of X being true is an acceptable interpretation for our community. And then we go over here and we've got Y doing it, using a different constellation of presuppositions and data and points of, of assumed truth, and they're coming up with one. And what we're saying is all of these are acceptable. I always use in my class with my students, in fact, my sister was engaged three times. I really couldn't, I couldn't stand the first guy. And I remember telling my mother, it's funny when she talks about this guy and I talk about this guy, you'd think we were talking about two different people. And to this day, I'm convinced that we both had our finger on truth. And so there are multiple ways of dealing with reality, whatever that is, uh, and uh, we approve 27 interpretations of reality as being acceptable to our community. That's as good as it gets, and that's wonderful. It keeps me employed, you know. I mean, uh, it would be really tough if we had one gospel and that was it, because I think Christianity would be impoverished if that were the case. Well, this, this strikes me just as a whole avenue of uh that of, of approaching the text that's just that's just distinctive and very interesting. That to think about the rhetoric as linked with the theology. That if if this is what God is like, it is the form of the theology. Then there are certain implications as how you would as to how you would try to communicate that. To right, right. And and it, I mean I can't go into it, but there's a certain anthropology built into every rhetoric. There's an obvious Christology, but there are presuppositions built into the rhetoric. There's an understanding of my relationship with other human beings. There's an understanding of my relationship with the world. All of that is built into that. And that's, that's what I do for my living, is that I go through and analyze the rhetoric of the characterization of God. And well, what, what is it telling me about the price of cheese in Rome? You know, I mean, it's, it's a world that's being projected. And any world that is projected, if it works, and I think the Gospel of Mark works, and I think the other ones work, then there's an answer to every question that can be ferreted out of that world. That's why these documents are still being read. They'd be really boring. If we had 27 theology treatises, they would have stopped being read. 
but we have stories that are alive today. There are stories that are still alive today because they can construct in our heads worlds, and they might not be the same worlds they did originally, but they construct worlds that have answers to our questions, even though they don't directly address our questions. That's, that's the wonderful thing about stories. A story is only good if it constructs a complete world. Out of however few pieces of information, you project the rest of it, but then you can insert yourself into it and it's alive. Uh, two questions based on the rhetorical or the, the, the verbal culture of the ancient world. And you were talking about the, the many times speeches or, or, or productions were arranged chiastically even to be expressed verbally. Was there a way in which that when you got to the center of chiasm it was signaled? Well, it's because it was done with vocabulary. So if you heard uh, mother, father, sister, brother, and then you dealt with something and then you came back... So, brother, sister, mother, father. Uh, so, you know. you all, so, but, so even if you were listening, you would know that when, the, when you get to the first repeated term, you back up one and there's, there's your sentence. Well, and it's not just that straightforward because what they'll do is that they'll repeat uh, mother three times or they'll hit it and then there'll be a pattern of uh, statement, digression, further development, conclusion, move to the next step. I mean, the authors, the authors build the audiences as they go along, just like you do in class. Your students can all mimic us, right? By this point in the semester, they can mimic all of us because we have a set pattern. We've taught them, if nothing else, how to figure out how we're teaching them. Yeah. And, and, um, and that kind of thing happens very quickly in an oral culture because they, they, had, they didn't have an unlimited number of forms. They had. They had realistic narration, even if it seems pretty wild and bizarre to us. They had reliable narrators. They didn't do all of this stuff of can I trust the author kind of thing, except in little stories where characters we knew were bad guys. We didn't trust them. So they, they didn't have as big a repertoire, but also they all went to and learned out of the same textbooks. So they had, they had, they had something that we will never see in our lifetime. They had a big study or monograph. Is there somebody who is interested in uh, taking this rhetorical analysis uh, and, and applying it especially to teaching? Is there, could you recommend like an article that really spells this out, how this works? With, with, with well, uh, you're, right, you're teaching Matthew? Uh, usually, yes. Read Peter Ellis's book on Matthew. Uh, there, there, there are... They're out there. I mean, the, the, the studies like this of Mark, they usually fall under the category of reader response. So if you want to look under a category in the card index, if we still have card indexes. Actually, well, he is, is uh, Wolfgang Eiser, ISER, who does the reader response criticism. Right, except he's, he's sort of general and uh, you, oh, but that's true. You did ask for a very general thing. General. Yeah, yeah, Eiser, yeah, he's, he's great. He's great. I, I, that's a little bit technical. I wouldn't, I wouldn't inflict that on anybody. Who am I trying to think of? Umberto Eco writes about this also. Um, I was so proud when I was writing my dissertation, I was critiquing Umberto Eco and a part of it with my director. And the phone rang and he picked it up and he said, Umberto, there's a doctoral student here who thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> And I nearly died. He was on the telephone. <laughs> the outgoing uh, president of the International Linguistic Association was talking to the incoming president. But, um, you know, I just, Umberto, somebody here thinks you're an idiot. I just loved it. But uh, he's, he's really good, too. 
he's really good too. And uh, the person I love, which is probably going to alienate some people who know this guy, but I just love Stanley Fish. I just think he's wonderful. So if you ever get a chance to read Stanley Fish, buckle up and bring your airbag. <laughs> uh, but but um, yeah, the, the, uh, the person who does this best for New Testament, I would say, is uh, Bastian van Ersel, V-A-N-I-E-R, it's two words, I-E-R-S-E-L. He has a study, he has several studies of Mark, which I think are absolutely brilliant. I don't agree with everything, but then I wouldn't stay employed if I agreed with everybody writing books, because then I wouldn't have anything to write, but uh, I think he's brilliant. So uh, there are people who do this kind of thing. Yes? Is, do you know if is Kurt Alain's synopsis of the four gospels still in print? I don't know. I still have a copy, but I yeah, don't know if it's still in but print. It's so bulky. Go to Google Use Books. Because okay. that, um, what he has, what you have with the, this does it for the entire, all four gospels, every single. Yeah, I don't know if it's still in print, but we might have it in the library. It's also library. pricey if I remember it right. Well, then I'm get it out of the library. Get it from the library. It, it the library. is still in print. The American Bible Society still prints it. Okay. Yeah, because you can, you can, and there's also something called, um, I just found it on the internet. They do, you just, just put in biblical books, uh, rare yeah, biblical yeah, yeah. books, put it in, and there's this place that will track it down for you. Yeah, yeah because, uh, you know, what we do in, in the course formerly known as Core Humanities is, you know, we just pick a single, usually we do a single gospel. Right. But there's a part of me that has thought, want to do, say, three stories mm -hmm. and read all four versions. Well, you can do that. There are actually four almost, well, this is one of them. There are four pericopes that go throughout all four Gospels. Mm -hmm. And other ones are more oblique and hard to find. But, the, but these four are pretty, I mean, you've got the feeding story, you've got the walking on the sea, and right. you've got, um, duh, uh, <laughs> what's the matter with uh, The entry into Jerusalem. Everything else is up for grabs. But, um, but you could do that. And, and what I do in my synoptics courses is I give the students one pericope and then they write a paper on it. And then they write a second paper on it, Mark. And then they do Matthew's redaction and Luke's redaction. So they, they just keep working and, and they are sure that there are three different gospels there. And mm -hmm. never, the, never shall they meet, even in casual conversation. I said, even at a cocktail party, you're not allowed to mention two gospels in the same clause. So, you know, that's it. Or say anything general about Jesus. <coughs> because it's all, it's all Mark's Jesus. Je uh, oh, well, that's, that's my Jesus, students. Luke's they drive Jesus. people crazy. Well, who's, what does Jesus, Jesus say about this? Who's Jesus? Paul's yeah. Jesus. That's, that's, mm -hmm. What do you do at Christmas? How do they pray? Yeah. <laughs> what, you they Luke's pray Jesus any way they want because they're not in my <laughs> class when it happens. <laughs> God, if they prayed at all, I'm thrilled. They can do whatever they want. <laughs> Well, but it gets at a larger point that this yeah, is no, very gosh. troubling stuff to our students. Well, but that's they, the follow-up. They don't like this so, at all. Well, they used to defend a version. No, that's not true. No, I mean, it's like difficult. It depends on the student. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult, but, but if, you, if you present it in a way that... I, I don't deal with faith in class because I teach the right. Gospels as literature. Right. But if you do it the that's right true. way, it's a challenge, but that's exactly why they're here. It's not going to destroy their faith. Right. Right. I, I said, don't ever think that I could destroy your faith. I don't have it in me. Uh, I don't have the wherewithal or the, or the desire. I said, but if, you, if you're challenged, good. And the thing is, is if you make your students feel safe, it's amazing how far out on that limb they'll go and examine these things. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I mean, I, it's really remarkable, and I'm lucky because I de deal with the student for a whole semester on gospel. So, you know, for the, for the first five weeks, they have white knuckles, and it's sort of like their hair is blowing straight back. By the end of it, they love it. It's a game, then. Well, it's not just a game. It's significant. It has a game quality to it. It's significant. It, it's not just stuff they had to learn to regurgitate on a test. They can actually right. learn techniques for reading and they'll come in and say, the priest talked about this, but I told my friend that this, that this pericope was really more about that because at the center, and I'd listen to him and I'd say, well, you're right, but the priest can talk about whatever he wants, you know? But the thing is right. that they, they, and that's when it's fun because it's theirs. It's not mine anymore, they've appropriated it. Right. That's the game quality. Well, oh yeah, I love games. Yeah, I, I it's not just yeah. playing a game. It's, it's I think play very seriously. Oh, I do too. I do. So I mean, I'm not. I, yeah, I, I, don't I mean that but, in any but, kind but of many people way. don't. I, right, and I was I accused once of turning everything into a game, and I said yes, and I'm still reaping the rewards <laughs> four years later. But in a sense, yes, in the sense that all of life is playful and yes. full of joy. Absolutely. And my students really do get this. I, I mean, I have the occasional failures. I am. I'll, it really does matter, and it's, it, it becomes, the students come to own it, and whatever it is, we've, all we've done is get consolation out of New Testament for so long, it doesn't mean much of anything anymore. Listen to it, let it talk to you, let it say what you don't want to hear, and then deal with it. Right. That's what it's there for. And I think that I have great success in that regard, and I'm sure that you do too. I really do think that that's something that we can give to our students. Make, make the Bible their book again. They all have favorite books that they've read 50 times. I make them read everything so many times that you know it's right up there with their favorite book by the end. They've, they've had to read the gospel three times through start to finish each gospel. and Then they have to read the pieces of it and put it back together and take it apart. And it's, it becomes something enjoyable. And you can actually see the detritus falling away as the semester goes yeah. along. I think that that's called a natural hiatus. Jim? Oh, Jim, Jim, <laughs> Jim oh, have yeah. a, a question. I'm sorry, just as a, well, I, when I think of the relation between Hellenistic culture and the Gospels, I tend to think about the prologue to John's Gospel. So I was curious if, uh, if you had any comment on that or if that shows us anything about the interplay. Or, I don't know if that came up. Well, I, I think it did, but, but let me just say this very quickly. The prologue is, I said that John was the most thoroughly interactive with Hellenism of the four Gospels. And, and a lot of the development could not happen except in a Hellenistic context. <coughs> At the same time, it's thoroughgoingly Israelite in its foundation because, in fact, God did debare and the, the word did create in Hebrew. So, so we, have, um, we have here a of reappropriation and not thorough but very widespread reinterpretation of the Hebraic background of that of that creation story and the word theology that's already active in the historical books and that that could not be possible outside of a, uh, Palestine with with a very variegated uh, Israelite free to function from a Christocentric point of view in which everything that reminds them of Jesus becomes significant 
and can be appropriated for our discussion of who Jesus is. So yeah, I think that John John's the textbook example of a thoroughgoing, interweaving, and interaction of Israelite and Hellenistic thought. And at the same time, it's still thoroughly both. It's, a, it's, it's the real love child of both of them, if I might. Okay. <laughs> and on that note, I am going to quit. <laughs>